Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Star Trek, the motion picture. In the year 2019, two geeks escape the decadent West to Japan, the land of the future. Now, they spend their present reliving the past. So what time is it now? 4.20 blaze it! Oh, 410. I see it. It's on, oh, yeah, it's on your iPad. It's on, it's on the iPad. It's close to 420. Yeah, we, we should just have, have like a puff. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we won't because we're in Japan and I am not risking any kind we, of We have no usage. puffs in Japan. I do have this chew high that I'm drinking at the train station. I bet there's a train coming. But let's get on it. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. No freeze frames here. I'm now desperately trying to remember if there's a freeze frame in the film, just to contradict you, but I don't think there is. Animated series has a lot of freeze frames. Oh, yeah, well, that's how you did animation in the <laughs> 60s, by not animating anything. Yeah, but uh, I, I think we both qualify as Trekkies. You, you've been with the Shat. I have been with the Shat. Yeah. Yeah, Lifetime Trekkie comes from my parents. Train! Sorry, that was from Star Trek 2. If there are people out there who think we put the sound effects in deliberately, they're going to think we're so obnoxious. <laughs> in the first minute, we've had like an announcement, a thunder strike, a gunshot, a train. I'm all for environmental recording. <laughs> anyway, you, you've had photos of the chat, and, and I, have, I have my gold, my gold uh, command shirt in the mail. Oh, I've got one in the cash. Probably get my parents to bring it here. I would have worn it today, but maybe it arrived today. But I don't have it yet. So, the motion picture. How did you first see it? I'm trying to remember. Pretty sure it would have been on a VHS tape, mm. or maybe literally on television. I think the same for me. I think my dad recorded it from TV on VHS, or maybe I did. I don't know. I don't think it was the first Trek film I saw. Uh, oh, almost certainly not for me. I know I saw two and three beforehand. Well, I'd seen a lot more of Next Gen before I watched any original series. No, I'd gotten through my original series. Um, because my dad got me into this stuff when I was like three. Mm. I remember uh, 85, 86 going and, and they'd had like a promo on the UHF station. Like, some, like I guess they're just going to keep showing Star Trek in their year. Like, dad, dad, there's a new season of Star Trek. He's like, what are you talking about? You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but two years later, we did get the next gen. And uh, yeah. before that, we had a few movies, including this one. Well, this one was very early on, right? This was just after Star Wars. Yeah, in fact, uh, we so should get a little bit into the background that, uh, you know, Star Trek, as many people know, was unceremoniously canned from television, cancelled in the parlance of our times. And uh, the first try was to get a new series on the air. I used to remember what they were going to call it. Phase, Phase two. Phase two, that's it. Yeah. But uh, on this series, we were not going to have Leonard Nimoy. He was not down for that. He is not Spock, or he was not Spock. I remember that. Yeah. I've never actually read either of his books. 
I haven't either, but I, I do know. Uh, <laughs> phase two is going to include all of the original cast except for Nimoy, and they were going to replace him with a new Vulcan science officer, a younger one. Okay. Full blood Vulcan as opposed to uh, Spock's half blood. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure back in like the days when Star Trek was just the original series, Those Spock was Star days. Trek, right? He was everyone's favorite. He was the one all the ladies fancied, all the He was breakout. And, 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 you know, getting in this movie, he is actually the person they're focusing on the most. But mm. I don't know. I think did Kirk's had his little... Uh, yeah, within catch. Kirk's own head, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I, I, feel, I, I just mean that if they brought back the entire cast apart from Spock... You'd have the Brady Bunch variety hour. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I don't think people like Jan best, but it did have a problem for the Brady Bunch yeah, variety the show, hour. The, everyone would have... Been Noticed. looking at the absence of Spock yes, and not yes. the stuff that was there. But when they finally did go to TV again, they had none of the characters. So no, that's a better way of doing it. And I, <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll go on record right now. I much prefer Next Gen to TOS. So, but like you said, Star Wars came in and that um, pushed this particular production to theatrical status as opposed to network status, mm. and that brought in our buddy Leonard Nimoy to play Spock once again. Ah, I see. Uh, the film. He was all about the Benjamins. Yeah. Well, and maybe having some exposure, which he wouldn't have had on a, um, no. on a network show. Although, uh, one thing I don't know if you're aware of or not, um, what they wanted to do with Phase 2 in the 70s was uh, push out a new network, a Paramount network. Ah, interesting. And uh, they eventually did do this with Voyager. Really? In America, Voyager was put out under a new network called UPN, which... I, uh, both of us live in Japan. I don't know if it's a thing anymore, but uh, it was. Oh, is for network th television still a thing? I guess not. But anyway, but now, nowadays it would be we're going to bring out a new season of Star Trek to launch our new streaming service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so once they went to theatrical staff, they had to get a few more big guns. Leonard Nimoy would be one. The other is the director of this movie, Robert Wise. So what else has Robert Wise done? I definitely know the name. Man, I shouldn't have spat out too. I I, I want to say he did the the day the Earth was day the Earth stood still. I am pulling out my phone to verify here. Okay, no worries. So um, uh, he's he's a big guy. Okay, so give me some names. West Side Story. Okay. The Sound of Music. None of these are Star Trek. But <laughs> the Andromeda Strain. A little more okay, sci-fi there. Okay. No, he's a he's Hollywood class. He is yeah. a Hollywood class director. Um, of course, Star Trek, uh, which we are talking about now. Um, oh, the Sand Pebbles. Do you know what that is? <laughs> no. My father, Steve McQueen, uh, in the Navy. Right. My father explained to that as being the most boring film he'd ever seen in the cinema to me. So I, I haven't watched him. So Sand Pebbles in the Navy sounds like something you put up your bum. But we got The Haunting. Okay. That's a good early uh, sort of horror film. Uh, Run Silent, Run Deep. Star Trek remade that with Balance of Terror in the original series. Yeah, I guess you're right. So, but one of the best episodes. The point being, they were very much, whoa, lightning. Whoa, nice lightning. Boom! <laughs> Holy hell, Shit. there is some lightning. And you Robert Wise brought the lightning here. They have a Hollywood big gun. They have an effects guy. And obviously they got ILM in to do the effects. Who yes, were hot yes. off doing Star Trek. So yes. was, sorry. And, and I, yeah, but I, I do want to get to the effects guy here is uh, Douglas Trumbull. Mm. who did the effects for 2001. Oh, okay. Uh, he did the effects for Silent Running, uh, a few other things, but this in 2001, I would say, are pretty much his, uh, his golden tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They both 
those films still look phenomenal today. Like there are scenes in this, um, particularly when they first go inside the the ship. Viger. Yeah, which, um, so 20 years later, Independence Day had scenes inside the ship. And they could be the same shots. You are correct. <laughs> and I guess it's time we get to the plot of this film, huh? Yeah. Off to the races we go. Twenty-third century, and ships from the Klingon Empire encounter a mysterious cosmic cloud. And what do Klingons do when they see something they don't understand? They shoot at it. The Klingons are quickly dispatched with some kind of energy blast from the cloud. A Starfleet starbase is able to observe these events. Meanwhile, on Vulcan, long-haired hippie Spock is involved in some kind of ceremony bestowing perfect logic that he, uh, fails. It seemed that he sent some other sentient life form, and those crazy Vulcans just throw everything on the ground. Spock picks it up and leaves Vulcan. Back at Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco on Earth, Admiral Kirk wants a Vulcan science officer on the Enterprise, which he insists leaves in half the time they require, leaving space dock from their recent refit. Kirk beams onto an orbiting station to meet Chief Engineer Scotty, who will then pilot them to the Enterprise. It seems the transporters are not yet working. It takes forever for them to reach the Enterprise's docking bay, at least on film. Kirk then lets Scotty know that he is taking command of the Enterprise from Captain Decker, who has been in command during the refit of the ship. That cloud the Klingons encountered is heading for Earth and will reach its destination within three days. Kirk wouldn't exactly consider himself untried. Kirk has an awestruck reunion with some of his senior staff, but an awkward one when he takes command from his former protege, Captain Decker. Then there is an alarm. While the Enterprise transporters were now supposed to have been online, they have actually managed to murder that essential Vulcan science officer and another needed crew member by converting them into creamed crap, which rematerializes back on the starbase. While this tragedy may curtail morale, Kirk gets everyone into the largest room on the Enterprise to tell the crew that they will be facing an unexplained entity that may harm Earth. He gets to punctuate that with a real-time disintegration of the starbase that had been observing the Klingons. Before rolling away, we need one more crew member. Leonard McCoy ends up drafted, beamed up against his will from a golf course, sporting a leisure suit and a hobo beard. But Kirk needs him. He needs him. The Enterprise must go to warp as soon as possible, and Admiral Kirk is ready to push the crew as needed to make that possible. The warp doesn't go well. The Enterprise's warp engines have a date with a stray asteroid. Decker calls the correct action to avert disaster, but Admiral Kirk calls him out on contramanding him his orders eventually realizing that Decker made the right call. 
Decker may have to uh, nursemaid Kirk a bit on the refitted ship. So how do we deal with that warp problem? Maybe it could be that surprise shuttlecraft containing Spock. He doesn't seem to share in anyone's happiness to see him, but he does fix the warp engines and the Enterprise goes to warp. Once the Enterprise reaches the cloud, Kirk suggests a passive approach, eschewing probes or shields. Decker voices the idea to cut and run. After a close call, Kirk's plan seems to be working and the Enterprise begins its way inside with a trippy light show. Once they reach the large object at the center of the cloud, Kirk orders a close flyby, which also turns out to be very trippy. Then a very noisy and bright probe from the cloud enters the bridge and seems to vaporize all of Helmsman Ilia except for her tricorder. Decker is very unhappy because the two of them used to date. The mysterious object has made whatever decision it needed to and tractor beams the Enterprise inside of the main structure with a power level that the Enterprise cannot hope to counteract. Once inside, what do you know? A new crewman bursting out of the sonic shower who looks just like Ilea, but is in fact a probe of the unknown cosmic quantity who now gets a name, V'ger. It seems the probe has enough of Ilea's memory engrams to respond to Decker, so he gives her the royal tour so that V'ger may learn before eradicating the ship of its biological infestation. Wait, what? Spock decides to get a little more hands-on by stealing a spacesuit, blasting into the trippy heart of V'ger, and mind-melding with its core, which is also taking on the form of Lieutenant Ilea. The mind melt is pretty intense, and Spock drifts back to the ship with Kirk there to catch him. Spock's insight is that V'ger has basically infinite knowledge, but in terms of emotional intelligence, is like a child. Gotta put a pause on that, though, as V'ger reaches Earth, dissipates its cloud, pachoom, and sends an archaic radio signal in the hopes of contacting its creator. When there is no answer, V'ger sets out on a set of geosynchronous killer drones to destroy the planet. Kirk decides to take Spock's advice, having the bridge crew simply leave when V'ger's probe goes on a tantrum. Kirk's bluff is that they know about the identity of the creator, and the probe calls them on it. So it's up to Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Decker to climb right out of the top of the Enterprise and explore V'ger's central core. It turns out that V'ger is actually a Voyager probe from late 20th century Earth. It had been damaged and patched up to practical omnipotence by some kind of faraway machine race. The missing letters of the name had been obscured by cosmic bric-a-brac staining the nameplate. It's up to the Enterprise to send the obsolete radio codes to defuse V'ger, but the hardware in the original Voyager probe decides to short circuit at this time. And we do mean decides. Turns out V'ger wants to physically merge with its creator. While cooler heads assume this is impossible, Decker decides that he wants this and vanishes along with the Ilea probe to who knows where in a blast of light. The cloud dissipates and Clerk Kirk, Kirk lists two casualties. Make that missing from the mission. Time for the Enterprise to warp to places unknown. And as the end card tells us, the human adventure is only beginning.
And we're rolling. It's time to talk about, uh, you know, all those little things we noticed out, uh, about the movie. So uh, why don't we go straight for the uh, design? Yeah, it's very boring. <laughs> like, it gets a really bad rap for being gray and dull. But there is lots of very cool sci-fi visuals and stuff. It's you, just those uniforms. The uni it looks like, uh, especially the, the polo show shirt versions, mm. it looks like they're about to start doing, you know, a tennis instruction on a cruise ship or something. Yeah, definitely. And there's like the one-piece pajama-y thing some of them wear, <laughs> which looks like a company you'd wear, like a company in Japan would wear that for like cleaning hotels or something. Exactly. But you, I was thinking, you know, looking closer, most of the design is actually quite cool. And the uniforms aren't that bad. You start to notice that, okay, Spock actually looks like Spock. McCoy looks like McCoy at certain, when he's not wearing that white cruise ship thing, but... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, just, it's just the lack of color, I think. Red. I always think of the color color in Star Trek uniforms. It's a lack of red. Yeah. We need red, we need red shirts. Yeah. The helm, if it were red, that'd be the Enterprise. We, we just learned that in Discovery, getting back to the Enterprise. Make, make the railing red, make the helm red. Hey, that's the Enterprise. Yeah, pretty much. But that said... Uh, well, I mean, not to get ahead, but look at the sequels for this film. And those red uniforms look amazing. They do. <laughs> and they reuse uh, the same sets and the same uh, main models. Mm. Uh, I, I, I will go and say that the um, refit model of the Enterprise is probably the gold standard. That, yeah, well, you described it as going on forever, but I really love that shot. <laughs> where they're flying up to the Enterprise. No, everyone loves that shot. Just, it, it does go on forever. Yeah, but, but I mean, <laughs> imagine if you'd been watching that in the theaters in 1979, after all you've been able to see was like reruns of the 60s show on TV, and now you can see the Enterprise brought to life on a big screen and just spaceship porn for like five minutes. Exactly, it's, it's 2019, uh, we just saw Endgame, and that had, what, 30 minutes of superheroes flying about. I mean, technically it was an action scene, but how different is that from an Enterprise flyby when you get- Not really, like there was no tension. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how about the Klingons? So this was the first time we saw forehead ridges, not just black guys, Klingons, right? They weren't even black and they, they just had dark makeup on. Yeah. Some of them are, are not, I mean, they seem to be of uh, any descent, really. Which yeah, is but fine. this is the first time we see Klingons who actually look alien a bit. Yeah. And uh, I, I should note that the version we watched, um, I, I, I have a DVD of this in the director's cut. I have a Blu-ray of the theatrical cut. And it skips, so I, I got a hold of a file of the uh, theatrical cut. It's fine, it's background. a legal backup because you It's a legal disc. backup, yes. <laughs> anyway, it has no subtitles. So when the Klingons are going, or right. the Walkins and I was going, watching that bit, I just, I thought, oh, they don't have any subtitles, that's interesting. No, I think, I, I, I believe see. the Blu-ray and the DVD did, but... It's, uh, it, it's because you've got an FLV file, so the subtitles are separate. That make, yeah, but anyway, we're rocking with no subtitles here, and... Um, uh, from what I understand with the Klingons, James Doohan apparently overdubbed gibberish, and that formed the basis of what we now have as a proper Klingon language. <laughs> and that's what you're hearing in the movie. Of course. <laughs> Wonderful. Shall People we take Klingons so seriously, and it's so clearly dumb. <laughs> well, Klingons are awesome, man. I like the Klingons, but... And um, I know Inception seems to have the... Uh, the patent on it now, but this is the original BWOM! Yeah, that was a good BWOM. <laughs> I didn't really like the effect when it took the Klingon ships out, though. Oh, the, the electric they, thing? Oh, the electric was fine, but then they just glow and disappear. I don't know. I think, just... I think 
I've recently been rewatching the original Star Wars trilogy, and everything's so physical and visceral in mm. that. And this is so old school sci-fi. Just vanishing. Then it's gone. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. I I I, I dug it because there it's like. Maybe no, it's it was because like it was so collection. slow. Yeah. If it had been more instant, it would have been like shocking and scary. But it was just like it fades <laughs> out and it's just. Um, earlier I mentioned Phase 2 and they were going to have a different uh, Vulcan science officer mm. and they casted him. Yeah, we see him for like two minutes. <laughs> exactly, he gets about two minutes of screen time. He is the doomed commander of the space station that uh, watches the Klingons get disintegrated. Oh, and... okay, I thought I was thinking of the actual Vulcan science officer we see turn up and die. No, no, that's not him. It, it, okay. The, the guy that was casted is the human commander of the Starfleet space station. Oh, interesting. He was going to be Zahn, spelled with an X. <laughs> That's kind of awesome, <laughs> but we—I think we do like uh, Spock better. So, um, so let's go to Vulcan. Yeah, uh, well, right. So the Vulcans are these—they're dedicated to pure logic. They learn it by logic. Why do they build so much weird, esoteric, religious shit then? <laughs> well, I, I do want to get on that the theatrical cut that you and I watched does have more of that. Right. You get this bizarre matte painting of a black sky with multiple moons and giant things. Yeah. Which I think is what you're referring to. And I love that. I, I love it, but it's just it doesn't actually gel with how Spot behaves. Right. They, how he tries to imply Vulcans <laughs> are meant to be. Well, they, they quote, they quote, unquote, fixed it. Uh, in the director's cut, I think you see Spock, uh, Vulcan with a lighter, a lighter sky and mm. not quite as insane architecture. But I, I like the insanity of the uh, theatrical cut. I love it in its own terms, but just the actual doesn't make sense what Vulcans are supposed to be. And it makes even less sense because this is our other um, unsubtitled scene. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> again. But I do like they, they just throw it on the ground. I mean yep. that 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 is uh, adding some insult to injury. Get out of here, you emotional weirdo. I never quite picked up, what, what is he emotional that he picked on on an emotionless thing's emotion? What, what was the uh, card? I, think, I guess it's just that he was distracted from his meditation because he was thinking about this thing. But it was, it was a ceremony. Yeah, I, don't, I really don't know. You don't know. have to meditate. I guess it's a Vulcan thing, man. You wouldn't understand it. They don't shit on their culture. Yeah, I, I guess I started talking about design, but I, we're moving on to character here, and uh, for most of the movie, Kirk is a dick. Yeah, well, <laughs> the movie seems like the lesson Kirk's meant to be learning is, oh, he needs to let go. So if this had been the only film they made, it would have been a great character arc. But then it's like, no, no, we do get five sequels where he does just get to be captain of the Enterprise. No, no, yeah, in the sequel, anyway. I, mean, that, I guess we get more Shatner in there. He's just more lively. Here, yeah. he's not very lively. I'm not saying he did a bad job. In fact, no, he, I really like. That's what I mean. It's not. It's very good character work. He's acting. It's just that here. they completely go back on it. Yeah, he's acting that, here. He's not Shatnering here. Mm. Although, truth be told, in most of the original series, he is doing more acting with, you know, the yeah, enemy within he's going nuts. But. It's only once he becomes, once he's big and famous and can do what he wants that he starts overshattering. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, he is just brushing everyone off. Be on the Enterprise in an hour. I'm taking command. Go screw yourself. <laughs> well, it's also interesting. So this version of the character and the version that we see in the actual original series is a very serious guy. And the whole, the version of Kirk, like which, for example, we see in the Kelvin films, it's not based on Kirk, it's based on Shatner. <laughs> exactly. The character of Kirk is meant to be so straight-laced and boring, that was his thing. <laughs> like, he's the guy at the Academy who never had fun. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, 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 speaking a little more character, I, I just thought uh, Sulu's initial reaction to him was pretty fun as well, because as uh, many listeners may or may not know, uh, Decay hates Shatner's guts. Yep. So it's, I think it's mutual between the two. It so. is, but I just, I, when, when Kirk shows up on the bridge and, man, that's some acting. Yeah, he looks he looks really happy to see him. It's a hey, <laughs> straight up, man. Um, and Kirk is a complete dick to Decker because Decker is actually doing his job quite well. Yeah, Decker would have been a perfectly competent captain for this mission. Um, I, I wonder though, uh, are you familiar that this is supposed to be the son of Matt Decker from the Doomsday Machine? I did not know that, no. This is supposed to be his son, so I wonder if there's... Is a- it supposed to be, or is that something that novels have added later? I'm pretty sure this was from the screenplay that this was supposed to be the son. Okay. Just as a little aside, but that could factor in. Maybe Kirk doesn't 100% trust him because uh, of the... Well, I mean, that would explain why Kirk took him under his wing as kind of a protege. Exactly. But uh, I-, I believe this is in the writing of the film material. Like, he was initially straight up supposed to be the son. Okay, nice. So... But uh, yeah, he gave uh, him no warning, so that's another dick move. That is a dick move. I want to talk about Decker for a second. Let's go for it. What a handsome man. Yeah. Like, I think I asked you before, like, I don't know if that actor's been in other stuff, but he's got real classic leading man jawline and everything. I I really do feel like he's been, I I know the actor's name, which could be because I'm a Trek geek, but uh, it might be because he's in something else. Let's check it out, but uh, the, the yep. character is very proto Riker, and so is his, uh, his relationship with the captain. Not with the captain, with Ilea. Oh, Ilea yeah, is yeah, proto yeah. Troy. Yeah. She's empathic. Yeah. yeah. This, this was the first run of that. That was going to be a plot in phase two, and they uh, recycled it for TNG. Uh, yeah, I think like a whole, pretty much the whole first season of TNG is just old TOS and phase two scripts, right? Yes. Yeah, and and, and then they crap. started and then they started outsourcing. They started like letting people just write. It's like in. fans sending scripts, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although it did make for some fantastic episodes. Yeah. Um, the effects uh, I mentioned before is Douglas Trumbull, I believe, who is who did two thousand one. He's he's the effects man. Yeah. And yep. this, like, I'm pretty hardcore for the theatrical version of this. Well, just yeah, long versions of all those gorgeous effect shots. And going into the cloud, I mean, they, they changed some of those up for the directors. Cause I think they tried to make the pacing better. Mm. And in a film way, they did. But um, I have to tell you, I haven't owned a lava lamp for many years. Uh, the theatrical version of this basically is my lava lamp now. Yep. <laughs> yeah, like, fair enough. I understand why they want to improve the pacing and stuff. But I go to a Star Trek film to see a whole bunch of Star Trek stuff. And you get a lot of Star Trek stuff here. <laughs> um, just on a side, I've been kind of eyeing Stephen Colin Decker's career here. Um, he's in lots and lots of stuff, but nothing else that is quite picking up. So I guess he is a character actor. Okay. Yeah, more well, or less. That makes sense because he looks like the 1970s version of um, Aaron Eckhart. And Aaron Eckhart never gets a starring role in anything. You're right. So. I think there's a certain thing with uh, leading men where um, you can't be too pretty. That makes sense. Yeah, there's no edge to him. Uh, Jude Law is, is looking a little, a little more edged now, but younger, maybe he had the same problem. Yeah, he was a very it makes sense. Handsome dude. I mean, if they're too handsome, they just aren't convincing as your lead. And that might be the problem with Decker, and that might be why it works in this role. Oh, this guy's too perfect, man. Kirk needs to take him down a notch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be 
in a rom-com, he'd be the other guy. He wouldn't be the one you're rooting for. Exactly. So is Aaron Eckhart. I want to note one cameo because we see this actor from the original series. We see her again. I don't think we see her after this. This is uh, Gray, Grace Lee Whitney. She shows up on the... Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, so she was Yeoman Rand, right? Uh-huh. And now she's the teleporter operator who accidentally gets two people killed and has well, a terrible time of it. Well, I think the teleporter does that. But yeah, yeah, yeah she's there to uh, get that ribbing. And, and I, I don't remember the details of her story, but I believe it went kind of downhill after this. I think it had already gone downhill quite and a bit since the came up hill a bit show. and maybe went back downhill. So, yeah. But I, I guess it's nice to at least get her here. Um, another thing I know is uh, Nurse Cap. Bull, Michelle Roddenberry, number one, is listed here with the rest of the cast, above a few of them. I thought that oh, was interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I don't even remember seeing her on screen. She's on screen. She's in the sick bay. Okay. Uh, I think she gives Spock a shot. I think she has a line or two, but uh, she is actually listed, I believe, above, um, above Water Koenig and Michelle Nichols. Damn. And, yeah. Because, well, she's, she's bumping the, the yeah. man. <laughs> well, is the computer, does the computer voice show up a bit as well? Oh, the computer here! Hey! The computer voice is not her. Oh! I noted it. It sounds like this. It is a male voice. Oh, yeah, you're and right. And it is the same voice. I'm from Atlanta. It is the same voice that was on the People Mover at the Hartsfield Atlanta International <laughs> Airport, the busiest airport in the world. I think they later changed that one to a nicer sounding female voice as well. Huh. So in the 80s and 90s, uh, high school, we'd go down there. We wanted People Mover. I believe there's a <laughs> punk rock song or two about it. It's great. And that is the voice on the Enterprise in this movie. It is definitely not our polite. Oh, so this was Rodney before she was the computer. It is. She's in the movie, but she's not the computer. Uh, I think in Next Gen, you get a male voice a few times first before she actually takes on the role. Oh, really? So she's a Luxwana Troy and eventually the computer voice and through the movies as well. And now, now they cast ladies to sound sort of like her. So. Mm. I want to get to the warp scene. Uh, before we can talk about the transporter. I actually want to save that for a little later. Okay, so the warp scene. The warp scene is maybe the scene I most remember from my first couple of times watching this film. I think this is the most LSD scene ever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, but like, I don't know if it's from when I watched it as a kid, when I watched it as a teen, when my Trek, Trek nerdery outstripped my parents and I was buying up the DVDs myself. But I really strongly remember that scene and the whole that phaser <laughs> order. That's great. I love that. Now, uh, I just thought it was weird when I was a kid. I was like, why are they doing that? But, yeah, 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 same. But it's just, it's stuck in my memory. Really. Well, a few so. years ago, I was properly uh, screwed up without going into the details. And I got paranoid. I was like freaking out the scene. I was like, why are you even in space? Why are you doing this? Just go home. <laughs> you know? And, but I was thinking like, if they did just go home and then the cloud shows up, and, and transmits the signal and someone figures out, use a radio signal and sends it back, that might have solved the whole thing a lot more yeah, like, recently. If the, if the issue was just someone had to reply, 
surely the 10 billion people on Earth would have figured it out. <laughs> I know. Maybe, maybe they should have just gone home. And that warp scene just goes to prove it. It's like, why? This is so dangerous. Why are you doing this, man? <laughs> you just turned into McCoy. Yeah. <laughs> if people were meant to be in space, they wouldn't have to breathe oxygen. I think he is screaming <laughs> on the bridge, isn't he? I, I had a similar feeling with Stargate Atlantis with the Wraith, too. I think I was, uh, maybe it was the same evening and was flipping out about the wraith there but that's, that's a different can of worms but yeah i i love that uh, i think i mentioned in my synopsis that uh, uh mccoy shows up as a disco hobo yeah he looks insane i love it <laughs> why, my did fashion icon. why did he shave he should have done that the whole movie he should have done that the whole six movies <laughs> just open shirt big beard no uh, i've said a few times now we've been watching the uh, theatrical cut but um, do I remember in the director's cut him mentioning that he actually was beamed off of a golf course? I know he talks about being drafted. Right. Which is not how I imagine Starfleet, for starters. <laughs> well, he was using it as a euphemism, I believe. Yeah. But, but the whole thing is, what is it just, did I construct this in my mind that he had been golfing and beamed off of the golf course? It's a very McCoy thing to happen, but I don't remember it coming up. Okay. Anyway, I, I feel like maybe they mentioned, there's like 80 cuts of this film. It's like Blade yeah, Runner yeah, almost. Yeah. And I feel like in one cut, they mentioned that happening. But oh, but if it just happens- It's our canon, even if it's not canon. If, if it does happen to be just from my mind, that's cool. Um, I'm gonna get real geeky here. And I think this is the only time in Star Trek we see a warp sled. When Spock shows up in his shuttlecraft, it's on like a sled that disengages. Oh, yeah, maybe. I remember seeing one of those in Star Wars. But how about Trek? Yeah, I don't know if I did. Yeah, and what, does someone just have to come and pick that up? Well, maybe it's like uh, um, rockets, well, that's how got real-world rockets boosters. They're just done. Yeah, that's, oh, is it? Oh, okay, maybe, maybe this is too, one too way before SpaceX where you start reusing the boosters. Yeah. If there is a spaceman, it could be all the sham man. There's, the Earth is flat, there's no space. Or SpaceX reuses boosters. <laughs> I don't know how you'll be to react when you go on these ones. <laughs> I don't either. Oh, 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 let's get a little more precog on all this. Uh, did you ever note Kirk's, uh, Kirk's, Kirk's watch? No. It's like this totally like freakish Apple watch thing that doesn't quite go all the way around his wrist. No, but I'll tell you what I did notice. Let's go that fucking it. baby seat that he wears whenever the ship's sinking. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a little thing around his Oh, legs. you're right. They don't do that again until like first contact <laughs> yeah. or something. <laughs> it, it looks like he, he pulls it up to eat his TV dinners. Like, but but what, if the, what if the gravity cuts out? That's useful. No one else has one. And it doesn't even properly strap him in. It just sort of gives him a little table at first. It's yeah, really I, weird. I guess he needs like a full on restraint, but the 70s were not about being full on restrained, man. It's about free love and sex, man. Right, and cocaine. Yep. This is before health and safety went mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. get into the more of the philosophical things here getting a little deeper into that and uh i said i wanted to save the transporters because uh how do we know you don't die every time you use a transporter they've kind of 
So all through Star Trek, every now and then, they sort of hint at this and they maybe do a little Two Rikers episode. Mm. But is this the only time we properly see a transporter accident? Well, when, when you mentioned the Riker episode way in the future where Thomas Riker shows up, mm. and they do mention at that point or later on, this might be from a book, sorry, but they mentioned there are very few transporter accidents in Starfleet's history. Mm. This being one of the few, like it's a 0.0001% chance that the transporter will actually kill you in this way. Mm. But what if it kills you every time? I mean, in a sense, it definitely does. Yeah. But apparently it can transport some version of your consciousness, but... Can it? it maybe it's a copy of the consciousness. The, the point, I, I, I wanted to lead off with this, because we get to uh, V'ger, our, our friend in the cloud. Mm. Um, how sentient is V'ger? How sentient is anything? Yeah, man. I don't know for sure that you're as sentient as I am. Mm, that's a good point. And the same, neither know me. <laughs> do I know I'm a, a, as sentient as I but am? But yeah, do I know that I'm sentient? And I guess this is what is driving Spock in the movie, is, is what uh, convinces him to, to uh, countermand command, get in an EVA suit, and go straight into V'ger's butthole. Mm. That's what it looks like. I mean... It's like a mechanical one. If that's a butthole, then the Enterprise has got its own butthole. It does. So does everything else, but... Yeah, well, yeah. That's the, that is the book, right? Everybody poops. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody poops, including Beecher. <laughs> but uh, I, I, that, to me, that's part of the, the core of this film is that uh, Spock is on the search for this thing that's contacted him. How sentient is it? How much is it not? But I guess it makes sense that for Spock, there is no logical way to define consciousness. So he's thinking, oh, if I can find a machine that is conscious, then I can you know, solve this. I can square this circle, I can understand consciousness. Mm, and, I, and maybe I, that's why he gives up on... It's not Ponfire, Ponfire's the sex one. That's the sex one. What's this, this one? This is the one where, because he feels that, the, the Vulcan Science Council throws it on the ground. Yeah, this, yeah, it's the one where he becomes totally logical, but I can't remember what it's called. Oh. oh bloody hell. Yeah, no. What the fuck? Kalanar. No, no, no. That's the, that's, the rip, that's the ripping the heart out from Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool, too. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so maybe that's the, the reason he fails that and gives but up on for, that. For Spock to square himself with his own logic, he has to accept his human side and sees that by seeing the icy cold technology of V'ger. Mm. But yeah, yeah, so maybe he does accept that there is no logical, mechanical explanation for what consciousness is. Exactly. So, um... Where did V'ger come from? Oh, well, it's the Borg, mate. Could it be the Borg? It is Listen, a machine I don't, I don't like the idea that it's the Borg. I don't either. It's, it's fun to think about because it, it does dovetail nicely. But at the same time, it seems that this mechanical... Like, if it were the Borg, they would have assimilated They'd have absorbed it and taken, they wouldn't have helped it out and sent it on its way. Unless they saw it as a kindred spirit, technological spirit, like Data in First Contact. I mean, you look around the... When they finally get into B- V'ger's heart, it is a little bit 70s Borg looking. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's all extrapolation, because obviously when they were making that movie, that was not on well, yeah, their the mind at all. The thing yet, right? It's just fun to try and see if you can draw some lines between this and that. I would like to see, whether it's in the Kelvin verse or Discovery or something, I want to see Kirk fight the Borg. I don't know if I want to see Kirk fight the Borg. No? He... he... 
He could talk it to death. He could talk the Borg Queen into committing suicide, could he? He could talk the Borg Queen into bed and yeah. just become the Borg King. But what would he talk to the Borg Queen? I don't know. I, he yeah, also I know. likes to talk computers into destroying themselves. He basically does that with the Beejer in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know like, the Borg works so well as a Picard enemy, but... But uh, with, with Spock so, so hardcore to touch Viger. Viger mm. is pretty hardcore to touch Decker in the end as well. Uh, yep. And, and uh, of course it is played with romantic music and sexual attraction. But come on, realistically, that's not what Viger's in it for. <laughs> because Viger doesn't understand that. It wants to touch its creator. Mm. But then also, Viger did absorb Liana, is that her name? Iliana. Uh, shit. No, that's, that's Colossus. Ilea. Ilea. We've got it. Ilea. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, maybe some of her, like, emotion, her emotions have compromised it a little bit, and that's why it's interested in Decker, but... Decker's already growing his alien heart on, too. He, he's in it for the nookie. He, he, he likes to go swimming with bald-headed women. Although her celibacy is on file, as she says to Shatner. Well, you changed the file. Yeah, I mean, presumably <laughs> she... Made her vow of celibacy after they dated was my read of it. Oh, sorry, I'm almost going back to our last little bit though. Decker's video games suck. He tries to get Ilea probe interested in humanity by showing the recreational games. Love, I'm like, these games suck. I don't want to play those. I love seeing, of all the things where like real world technology has evolved much faster than sci fi predicted it. Seeing old 70s sci-fi idea of what futuristic video games would look like is my favorite thing. I mean, I, I can take, it's a 500 meter walk from here, man. I'll show you 3D Pong. I've played that, it's amazing. Maybe we need to go play 3D Pong when we're finished here. Anyway, <laughs> where was I? Yeah, Decker's games suck. Of course the probe is not interested. Like what's that crap game that Bond plays in one of the... I know what you're talking about. Which one's that? Where instead of playing a card game, they play some crap video game. I just remember Moonraker was getting blown back. That's a game to play. But yeah, is that the one with Connery where it comes back? Oh, maybe. That was Never Say Never Again, right? Yeah, Never Say Never Again. Yeah, maybe. I don't remember. Yeah, we did, we, sorry, folks. We didn't really research tell. that one. We, we researched uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little more Spock, though. I, I uh, Yeah, just I, I think the key moment here with him wanting to touch Viger and Viger wanting to touch him or touch Decker or whoever, you know. The one thing Viger does not understand is this in his sleeveless uh, sick bay uniform. Uh, I feel like that's kind of the key scene of the movie here, philosophically. Even more so than the, the, the big epic ending. Well, the rock Spock discovering that his humanity... Yeah. It's just... Yeah. Viger well, doesn't get this. He it just it can't hold hands. But... So, I remember this... The first time I sat down and properly watched this film, that was my main issue with it. Was that we had three seasons of slowly watching Spock become more in touch with his friendship and his humanity. And then they decide, mm, no, we're going to forget all that and do it again. But he never quite did it in the original series. No, but there were so many moments where he did have warmth and friendship. Right, but then they wound him all the way back to like 0% emotion. Right, because it's film. like next week, it's time to hit the reset button. We got our series Bible. This is who they are. So, yeah, but, but the point is, in this movie, they solidify it. Yeah. In Star Trek 2. I'm not saying it's still an issue now, but the first time I watched it, I thought, I don't want to see Spock being this much of a like a tedious asshole. But now watching it, it's like, yeah, this is the definitive Spock story. Yeah, because Star Trek 2 is fully groovy. Um, yeah, and, and then, then by they... Star Trek 6, he's gotten himself to fully groovy again after dying. <laughs> oh yeah, well, so I guess Spock is Star Trek's version of Rimmer from Red Dwarf. 
<laughs> where they just do the same plot every season. Because they only know how to write one plot spot, one Spock plot. Does Rimmer have a sea change? He always starts like, ah, oh, he's, he's, he's up himself, he's an asshole. But then by the end, uh, him and Lister are friends. But the next season, he's back to it, they hate each other. Okay, okay. And by they, the but... end of that season, they're friends. And then, okay. <laughs> and it's the same with Spock. They know how to do the story where he's not in touch with his emotions, but by the end of it, he is. But that so scene... then they need to find a way to reset him. So, ah, oh, no, he's dead. Ah, oh, no, we're in a different timeline. Ah. Uh, that experience changes him, though. There is no Spock afterwards, chronologically, that um, does not. Well, apart from that, he dies and comes back. But then he has to grow it again. Yeah, yeah, so I mean. Again. And then he, yeah, yeah, so I mean. They it's the same they lesson at the Yeah, they have to do the lesson again and again because mm. they don't know how to write a Spock who was just... A laughing... They don't know yeah. how to write a laughing Vulcan. Apart from in um, <laughs> the very first pilot. Oh, he'd laugh. They hadn't decided that he was. Well, you're right, right. But, but then after that, if Spock is smiling, we're in for no good. Yeah. Cybok smiles. That's that's a that's bad news. Yeah. Although we love that bad news. And you've got <laughs> shouty Spock in the Kelvin verse. Yeah, yeah, Kelvin verse. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to that. In a, we're not we're not got... pooping on it. It's just it's just not the time to talk about, it, is it? It's, yeah. There are things I like about that, but uh, hey, let's see if the motion picture holds up today. So the thing people always bring up, and not even just Trekkers, but film fans generally, is the old Star Trek films are bad, even Star Trek films are good. Which I don't buy. Like, at this point, I think I could watch this one over and over more than Wrath of Khan. I've seen Wrath of Khan too many times. So I'm finishing your own thought there. Yeah, <laughs> but Wrath of Khan, it's good, but it's a very simple, it's just there's a goodie and a bad guy and they fight, is the yeah. plot, right? Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm sure we're going to do this one too. I love feeling we're going to go through all the tracks before we're done with this yeah. project. <laughs> um, after I did my notes here, I, I, you know, just going to bed, I was like, oh, we're going to Star Trek V now. Because <laughs> I like Star Trek. It's fun. Oh. This, this uh, isn't quite fun. No, but it's just, it's, it's Star Trek. This, it's this, got that thing where it asks big questions. It does weird stuff that people talk about problems and solve them with their brains. It's not just... Star Wars with a Star Trek liquor paint. Right, this, this is the purest Star Trek in my opinion. Is it the best? No, not really. Is it the most entertaining? Not really. Does it have the best effects? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, well that's because I think it had a pretty big budget compared to most of the other films. True, but this is Roddenberry, this is the only time uh, Roddenberry, you know, he had his hand on the tiller for the start of the TV show. Mm -hmm. By season two, he's already handing it away. Season three, I don't think he showed think up much. Next but Gen was the same thing as well, right? He's Season Very one involved season one and then Yeah. But even more than that, I mean this he didn't direct it of course, but this was Roddenberry was in charge. He was mm. like, No, our characters will not have conflict. They're not gonna fight some so, sort of demon they're exploring and there's this unknown they're gonna explore and they're gonna they're gonna show the best of human potential trying to explore it even if Kirk is a dick in this movie. So I can understand why people want conflict and action and adventure because yeah, it does make for better stories. But I do love the Roddenberry vision of 
Star Trek, the United Federation of Planets, Starfleet, all of this stuff. And like you say, I think in terms of the films, this is the purest, just here is Star Trek in a film. And here, here's one of the reasons I, I, I can, well, yeah, I can straight up identify as a Trekkie. Um, most things you watch, uh, look at Mission Impossible, look at Marvel movies, look at anything you want, Game of Thrones. It's people screwing up and dealing with the consequences. And the, the vision of Star Trek as I see it is, no one's screwing up, we've got our act together. We're gonna push out and then we're gonna have to deal with the issue there because we're looking out. Uh, we're good, we don't have to really work on it anymore. You do have to work on it. Again, uh, Kirk's got to work on it. He's a dick. Spock's got to work on it. He's too logical. You have your personal issues, but as humanity, we're going to push out and then we're going to deal with problems. We're not going to deal with those problems because we're screwing up. Yeah, Star Trek is just inherently very optimistic. Hmm. I think there are times when that's what you're looking for and times when it's not, but I don't think there'll ever be a point in my life or in society where I don't need a bit of that Star Trek optimism. Right. So I, I think we're on the same page there, but let, now let's look at V'ger. So it's this, this technology that's gotten itself out of hand and no longer has any humanity, which honestly makes a lot of sense now. We got our iPhones, people are talking about actually hooking up their brains to computers. But V'ger is a old tech, that's Voyager technology, somewhat souped up. So how does the message stand today? <laughs> I'm not 100% sure what the message is. Because you could read it as like, oh, humanity shouldn't send this stuff out into space because who knows what happened. But then the whole plot of Star Trek is that it is good to go and explore space. So. I guess it works out in the end, though, even yeah. if Earth almost gets destroyed. I guess Vija is like the child of humanity. Hmm. So maybe there is some sort of message there about the legacy we leave behind and parenthood and something, but and it I doesn't quite it resonate with me. Yeah, I, I guess, interestingly though, this is the first Saving the Earth episode, episode movie. And the, and the episodes, they never did that. After this, like, every movie is about Is this, is this the saving first the time Earth. we see Earth in Star Trek? Mm, in the present. Oh yeah, I mean, there's lots of weird time travel episodes in there. Yeah. If any time they had to use one of their old backbots because they couldn't afford a set. That or Nazis, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't have the holodeck to excuse those episodes yet. <laughs> But um, I, I guess we're wrapping up here, but I, I guess the thing I really love about this movie is most movies I don't want to rewatch, and then there's some movies I want to rewatch, and some, you know, eventually you get tired of rewatching them. Star Trek II goes in that category. The Big Lebowski, I love that movie. I've seen it too many times, I can't watch it anymore. But this movie just keeps getting better. Every time I watch it, I like it more. <laughs> so I kind of agree with you but the way I'm gonna put it is gonna make it sound like I don't like this film. This film is very slow and boring, <laughs> but as I get older and slower and more boring, I am coming to appreciate it more. <laughs> like, films are very quick these days. Even though they're longer, they're, they're, you're never on the same shot for more than five seconds and everything's changing and it's all about action and nothing asks you to think. And here we're gonna stare at this awesome model for like 10 minutes yeah, with some very have... good music. Uh, and and I, I kind of hinted on it, but let's just note that this is one of the better film soundtracks ever too. But uh, I, I completely forget every time I watch it that this is where the next gen theme song comes from. Oh. As a muso, I'm a little muso myself. Um, if anyone's interested, uh, if you listen to this, this one is way more in your face. 
Mm. The the one that we know from Next Generation is much more smoothed out and romantic, whereas this one's like, bah, 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 bah. It's, a, it's a military march in your face. Yeah, but just the tune. No, no. Because in my head, that's the Next Gen theme tune, so it's mm-hmm. so weird that it's in this yeah, it is weird TOS movie. But uh, the hallways from this movie do get reused as the Enterprise D hallways. Yeah, well, you know. Um, the main bridge comes back as the Enterprise D's battle bridge, too. There's a lot of things. Oh, I didn't even notice that one. Yeah, have a look at that next time. Uh, whenever they're on the battle bridge or on Star Gazer or something, I believe it is this set. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Because it's a cool set. See, that wouldn't happen these days because I think the film and TV licenses have been split. No, you right? Oh, they're split, yeah. CBS has the TV and uh, Paramount has the movies. So there'll be no sharing of sets and uniforms and <laughs> Spock actors. <laughs> but yeah, the slow and boring movie, it's it's a, it's a fun, slow and boring ride. This, this is Epcot Center. I went to Epcot Center as a kid. I've been to it more recently. Yeah, I'm the guy who drags my friends to museums and then reads every single exhibit. So. Yeah. When I was a kid, like this is the Epcot Center dark ride of film. Because they put you on Horizon, it shows you the history of science and communication and what the future could be. And you're you're moving pretty slowly the whole time. And they've clearly put a lot of money into all the sets. Mm. And it's just moving slowly with dramatic music. And that's this movie. And, you know, I don't need everything in my face. Sometimes it's kind of nice to take that dark ride. Well, and this is the movie that could only have happened once because I don't think it was super successful financially, right? It was pretty successful. Was it? It was successful enough that obviously they were going to make a sequel, but we're scaling down your budget. Yeah, that's what I mean. So it was like, this was the film where they just like, they gave Roddenberry this money and were just like, oh, well, Star stuff is big, so make a Star Trek. Right. And he made Star Trek. Yeah. And then they were like, ah, not like that. (laughs) It it wasn't a failure. Let's put it that way. No. Um, But it it, it was not Star Wars, obviously. Yeah, but it it was. In Star Trek, it's still not Star Wars, even when they make it Star Wars. Yeah, but that's the thing, that this film they tried to make Star Trek, and they're like, ah, no, Star Trek doesn't make money, make Star Wars instead. <laughs> and that's pretty much every other film. Yeah. I mean, maybe Insurrection is a bit more Star Trek. Yeah, well, did, did they make Star Wars with uh, the Wrath of Khan? We will get to that at a later point. I'm sure point. we'll cover all the Star Treks eventually. <laughs> Man, we, we well, this isn't a Star Trek podcast, it's a sci-fi podcast, so Yes, we, we, we can do all this again if we wanted to and talk about completely different things, but we're gonna wrap it up today and come back to you next time with Spider-Man! That's not Star Trek. We'll leave it to you to guess which Spider-Man, because there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So this has been Matt. This has been Luke. For our sci-fi sanctuary. Matt and Luke's Sanctuary is produced by Luke Summerhays and Matt Comages and edited by Matt Comages. Music is from the Groovy Groups on rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com You can contact us at mlsfspod at Twitter or Facebook. In the year 2019.
Why would you open a can during my intro? Because that's what happens in the year 2019. I open a can while you're doing oh, that's an intro. That's the first outtake to put at the end. That's not an outtake. Move on. 